Steve and I recorded this podcast a few hours before the tragic death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. On next week's episode, we will talk about the implications of the Supreme Court fight, uh, both in terms of uh, the election uh, and potentially a lame duck battle. I'm David Pluck. I'm Steve Schmidt. And this is Battleground, a podcast from the Recount. So, Steve, uh, fascinating week this week. We had these town halls, uh, Biden on CNN Thursday night, Trump earlier in the week on ABC. I'm sure part of the reason they did this was to practice for the big event, the first debate on the 29th. If these candidates bring those performances to the debate stage, what does it tell you about its impact on the race? Well, it tells you Donald Trump's going to be in a lot of trouble. I, Trump was terrible at the town hall. And, you know, you and I have talked a lot about this. When you watch him, it's usually with a mouth agape trying to process the nonstop lying, the nonsense, the the BS. And it all takes place in this alternate reality universe. And I felt like when I was watching the town hall, this actual American stood up and asked him questions. Trump was confronted with reality for the first time in a long time. And he looked terrible. He looked small. He looked diminished. And he was held to account for things that he did. And I, I just think it's like the Wizard of Oz being exposed was the feeling that I had. Right. And the other thing that's interesting here, because I think one of the things that's driving this election is there are voters who, you know, might have truly been torn pre-pandemic or, you know, maybe they were slightly leaning one way or the other, but they're just tired of the act. Right. So here we see this week, Trump attacks his CDC director for suggesting that people should wear masks again. He's attacking his FBI director for not doing what he wants around uh, Russia. And so I think the other thing that really was important this week is Trump has to pull vote away from Biden. Because part of this is, yes, he mismanaged the pandemic. There are some people who like what he did on the economy. Other people don't. But they're just tired of the whole act. That's where I think the race is today, which is Trump's in a box because he's out there every day doing press conferences. He's doing interviews. He's doing town halls. And it seems like every time he opens that trap, uh, and his addled brain, um, you know, takes center stage. He actually is setting his electoral case back. He's like a punch drunk old fighter on his on his last legs at this point with a bunch of this stuff. And I do think that it's not just the exhaustion of the chaos and government and the incompetence and the malice and his deliberate lying, which is responsible. I mean, look, Americans would have died from COVID, but if Americans died at the mortality rate that exists in Germany, we'd have 140,000 fewer dead Americans. I mean, just the, it's just the reality. And, you know, when you look at these crazy people, then they are crazy people, right? Like storming the Walmarts, right? You know, without masks and screaming at people and, and all of it, right? It's just, I, I think the majority of the country is sick of it. Every whack job in the country has been a has been given a green light by Trump to be their worst selves. And, you know, I'm putting my chip on that. People are worn down, worn out by it, want to end it. Yeah. So we're going to go deep in what I think is the most important battleground state in the country. Now, you and I have run presidential campaigns, so we know there's a bunch of different pathways to 270. So they're all important. And, you know, you win or lose certain combinations and. And, and you can get there. But Florida is close to a checkmate with Trump. So we're going to talk to a couple of Florida veterans who, who live in the state, who know the state, 
from, you know, Key West all the way up to the Panhandle. So Steve Shale is someone who was instrumental in Barack Obama's two wins in Florida in 08 and 12. He's a veteran Democratic strategist. He's now running a super PAC called Unite the Country, uh, which was founded to help Joe Biden. And as someone who just knows the numbers uh, inside and out, and he'll be joined by Rick Wilson. Rick Wilson, my uh, Lincoln Project co-founder, the pride of Tallahassee, a veteran and experienced consultant in the state of Florida who knows it forwards and backwards, will help us unpack it and get to the fundamental reality in this contest is, which is that a win in Florida early for Biden takes a lot of the energy out of the really dangerous assertions by Trump that any election that produces a winner that's not him is illegitimate. So, Rick uh, Wilson, you know, Florida is not a state. It's more like six or seven different countries. <laughs> uh, talk a little bit about that, because, you know, having run campaigns in Florida, it for me was always the most fun in a way, but complicated, complex place to really get your arms around running a campaign that mattered. Sure. I mean, you've got 10 media markets and the, the groups that are coming into Florida have changed the character of the state even more than they have, you know, with the normal churn. Um, and it makes it, it makes you stay on your toes politically. And look, the state Donald Trump won by 150 some thousand votes four years ago has changed quite dramatically since then. And so you never step foot in the same river twice and you never run an election in Florida the same way twice. I was going to ask Steve Shell, what, what do you think has changed most in the last four years in Florida since Donald Trump was elected president? I think in terms of just looking at kind of the polling right now, the, the things you see that are different. You see Joe Biden doing considerably better with older white voters, which should make sense. The people that move to Florida, they bring their politics with them. And most of our swing white vote tends to come from the upper Midwest. Uh, so you, uh, you know, the, the fact that Joe Biden is doing better with in the upper Midwestern states, it would make sense that we're doing better with older voters in Florida. Uh, that's sort of that one piece, just like we're seeing elsewhere. He's doing better with suburban white women, uh, you know. And then the thing that kind of keeps the race close is that is that Donald Trump is, you know, is doing a little better with uh, the Hispanic vote right now than to Hillary Clinton or even we did in 2012. So, Rick, is that solely because outsized strength amongst Cuban-American voters or is he also showing strength? Uh, you know, in the Colombian and Haitian and Puerto Rican communities? Well, the primary strength points of Trump in the Florida Hispanic community are, of course, with Cuban voters. Um, they tend to be, as we all know, more conservative, broadly speaking, uh, especially in the you know 40 plus demos. They tend to still respond very powerfully to the word socialism, which Donald Trump was you know willing to throw out there very quickly, very early. And Without, let's be honest, a whole lot of really uh, vigorous response from the Biden campaign at that point. You know, it may be a boogeyman, but it's still a boogeyman that Cubans are very afraid of. Now, in the Venezuelan community, there's also been a little overperformance by Trump. And I think that is, you know, a, a similar echo. They've seen authoritarianism up close. They don't like it. There's been a lot of, of messaging toward them that Trump and the administration are pushing against uh, the Maduro regime. Whether that's you know true or valid is not necessarily the case, but they still feel like that's happening to some degree. With other Hispanic communities in Florida, the Puerto Rican vote is where everyone has their eyes on right now. It's vital that Biden and outside groups, you know, we're doing it, go into the to the Puerto Rican community and make it very clear that if they want to help the island, they have to vote Trump out. There's been a little bit of traction on that. 
you know, Hillary's campaign did not get there in 2016. Uh, and it's vital that, that Biden outside groups do with Puerto Ricans. They can offset a meaningful fraction of that Cuban solidarity with Trump. So, Rick uh, Wilson, uh, you saw Trump finally getting religion about helping people in Puerto Rico. He's uh, announced like a $14 billion aid package. I assume this is 110% driven by, you know, uh, electoral scenarios in Florida. Speak a little bit about that and you think if that'll have any impact. I think that if it's in the form of tossing paper towels, it may not help as much. Um, but I think it's a little late and I think Puerto Rican voters are not unsophisticated. Uh, they recognize that this is an election play. They recognize this is a last minute sort of, um, you know, forgive me for essentially treating you as as non-Americans because his, his contempt for them was very evident in a number of different statements he's made over the, over the last couple of years. And his mishandling of the hurricane, you know, it isn't going to go away now. And I think people are going to realize that a sudden burst of investment and aid to Puerto Rico that, that, by the way, won't come until well after the election and therefore won't come at all, um, is just a is just a snare and a delusion. And I have one thing to add to that real quick, David. I mean, you know, I think it's also, and I think the media has sort of done a disservice here. I think there's this idea that most people who live in Orlando or Central Florida who are Puerto Rican somehow just showed up here on a JetBlue evacuation flight after Hurricane Maria. When, as you all right. know, I mean, Puerto Rican population has been growing in Central Florida for 20 years. And a lot of it, you know, came through New York. And so these, these are not just American citizens. Some of them are second and third generation mainland citizens uh, who are here, whose issues are, yes, interested in Puerto Rico, yes, interested in Puerto Rico self-determination, but are also keenly interested in who has a better health care plan, who's going to get this economy growing again, uh, who's going to make sure that their kids can afford, go to go to college. And I think that, you know, it's uh, it's it can be really tempting for politicians to sort of do things that are patronizing like this, um, you know, and skip over issues that truly do matter. I mean, again, these are not these are these are not all voters who wake up every day oriented towards what's happening on the island. Most of them wake up every day trying to figure out how to give their kids a better life than they had. And that's the piece that he's not talking to. One of two things will happen, you know, for, for Trump to win. Either you're going to see this, you know, sort of lower level of Latino support continue all the way through the election or you're going to see Trump really kind of go into places like Tampa and Orlando, where, where Joe Biden's doing very well with suburban white women and older voters, and, and crack into that. I was just sitting here spitballing, trying to imagine what the meetings must be like. They, you know, is it that they're in there saying 200,000 dead Americans, fuck it, four more years? Or is it 200,000 dead Americans in 2020? We won't get to a million till 2022. I mean, it is it is hard to conjure what the what the message is, and I think we got a we got a preview of it in these town halls where Trump has basically stood up and declared, "I'm doing a great job," which you know fundamentally means the and puts forward into the into the decision matrix right for voters is. You know, he's never going to change, right? He is he is who he is forevermore. And, you know, do we want four more years of this? And, you know, Steve, as you just think about the state that you both know so well, just psychically, intuitively, where do you think that question is going to come down? The challenge Trump has here is not different than he has in, in places in the upper Midwest, which is, you know, even with approval ratings at maybe 46 or 47, which is obviously higher than most places is, is, you know, is very unfavorables or, you know, 50 or 51. And so 
you know, he's he's stuck in this place where he he's, you know, clearly incapable of ever acknowledging that he was ever wrong on anything. And, you know, he's got now got to convince some people who think he's been very wrong on a lot of things to give him another shot. How does Joe Biden bring it home in Florida from now to the end, including through the debates? What, what does he need to do to put this away? You know, obviously, you know, need to continue to do the work uh, in the in the black community, I think. You know, it's pretty apparent looking at some numbers that the that the Clinton folks didn't do enough, for example, with Caribbean blacks than they did with African Americans. And then Puerto Rican turnout in Central Florida, uh, getting that in a good place. And then I do think, you know, frankly, some polling we did recently said as much maybe as much as twenty percent of the non-Cuban vote, um, in, particularly in South Florida, is actually very much still up for grabs. And if if we can get that number in a better place, um, you know, again, I just think that the numbers coming out of South Florida will be will be in a pretty good place. You know, Florida is a game of small numbers, as it always is, and we need to peel off 50,000 seniors here and and 25,000 veterans there and 200,000 Puerto Ricans here in order to make this thing, to land this plane. And what about COVID? How do you rate the impact of that in the state of Florida, the job that the governor has done, any particular implications or sensitivities around COVID in Florida? you know, that you think are unique to Florida? I think there are two things that are pretty interesting. First of all, you remember, you know, why do older voters move here? You know, they move here because the climate's good. They move here because their kids can come visit them. They, they move here because it's a, you know, in a lot of places, a fairly, you know, affordable cost of living where, you know, if you can go find, if you need additional work, you can find work. It's, it's a state that's very comfortable for older voters to, to live and work in. And all of a sudden, you know, we're in this environment where all those things that, that caused you to come here are really been taken away. And, you know, it's a state where, you know, economically, when, uh, you know, we're entirely dependent upon other people spending money. And so when when the economy in America is doing well, the economy in Florida is just, you know, taking off. But when America's in a recession, in a lot of ways, Florida's economically in a depression. And so you sort of add those things up uh, and it really becomes kind of a, you know, a double, triple whammy on, on these older voters. And, you know, you've seen, you know, uh, as Rick knows, you've seen the governor's approval rating slide 15, 20 points just over the last uh, last three or four months. And I think that, you know, there's 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 a fairly now direct line between the, the Trump approval rating and the DeSantis approval rating, where maybe, you know, again, three or four months ago, that wasn't the case. Mike Bloomberg announced he's going to spend $100 million in Florida alone. Uh, now, Florida is a massive state, a complicated state, as we've been talking about. But even in Florida, $100 million goes a long way. How do you evaluate the impact it can have here in the closing weeks? Since the Bloomberg announcement, you've seen the Trump campaign really kind of double down. You know, they, you know, they, they know they have to win here. I, I have a feeling that's going to that's going to benefit the other states on the map when it comes to my side of the equation. At the Lincoln Project, we we tend to spend at least a half an hour a day talking about the subject of the Trump campaign spending. And when we look at it, we're just incredulous and speechless from the perspective of where the fuck did a billion dollars go? And how do you run out of money when you've raised that much? What are you picking up in the in the state of Florida with with regard to the Trump campaign spending patterns, things that are unusual? You know, it, it feels like, and I'm curious what Rick thinks on this too. I mean, it, it feels like they've, they've just kind of been a little bit all over the place trying to figure out what their what their argument is, frankly. 
they'll lean into sort of the Trump commander in chief argument here and there, and then they'll drop off that and they'll claim that Joe Biden's senile and is going to destroy everybody. And they'll jump off that and talk about how great he's doing on the, on the COVID thing. And it just feels like they, they're, they're searching for, for something and they haven't yet found it. Um, now, I mean, at some level, they, at least of late, I think are trying to, uh, you know, make up for that with just volume. But, you know, even with the volume they're spending, um, they're not, they're not out communicating the vice president. And, uh, and again, I think that's where, you know, they're going to be in a tough spot. I mean, they've not really ramped back up in places like Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. Um, they know they have to win here. And so again, I'm, I'm hopeful of nothing else. Obviously I want to win here on election night. I think it makes the entire process a lot easier, but, um, Certainly, they're spending here at the exclusion of other places that they have to win to get to a you know to get the re-election. What are the spots they're running right now, and are any of them sort of unique to Florida? How do you divine their strategy when you look at what they're running? They've bumped up in Florida, at least on the order book, um, the in Florida, uh, North Carolina, and Arizona. I think they're starting to see that as the battlefield. Um, that that you know, that's their Alamo. We have seen in the last week that the, the, the degree to which they're spending has dropped off basically by orders of magnitude, Ohio, New Hampshire, Iowa, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan. They've increased spending uh, very, very slightly in, in Maine too, which is a, it's a trivial buy, like $190,000. Uh, a touch in Georgia, Nebraska, they're spending, obviously another congressional district play. They've increased their spending in Washington, D.C., by about $300,000. And I can tell you, Steve and I are sitting here and that's because we're running ads in DC and the campaign is afraid that Donald Trump will not see his ads and we'll that see- That is so ours. pathetic. That is just so pathetic. It is so sad. But yeah, to Rick's point, what's interesting down here though is, uh, you know, like right now, I mean, we're, like everybody, we're, we're pricing TV and, you know, the IE rates in places like Orlando and Tampa are as ridiculous as you would expect. You just mentioned IE rates. For those who may not be familiar with political acronyms, IE stands for independent expenditure. So groups like the Lincoln Project or Unite the Country that Steve's running, and they pay different rates than political candidates who are guaranteed by law lower television rates. So independent expenditure groups actually usually pay more uh, for television ads than candidates do. Uh, but what's fascinating is like because they're they're not spending at the level they should be, you know, places like Jacksonville, West Palm, Fort Myers, you know, Pensacola. I mean, these are all markets that have a lot more inventory than they should have and a lot more inventory that Rick and I can go afford um, in part because the, yeah, the, the Trump folks just haven't been there in, in the way that you would think they would be. Now, I mean, they're, again, they're they're making the, the decision to, you know, to go lean in as hard as they can on I-4 and you know, they've been able to keep their spend up. And this is, I think, what you know, keeps the race truly competitive here. They've kept their spend up in a significant way among in the Spanish language uh, markets. When Steve Shell talks about inventory, he's talking about the ad inventory, how many uh, basically ad placements are available in a market, uh, particularly this close to election in a battleground state. Oftentimes, that's quite limited. Uh, and so independent groups have to pay extraordinary rates, sometimes eight or 10 times what the candidate does. But because the Trump campaign is not spending as much as you think in all the markets, there's more ad inventory. There's more ad inventory available for both the Biden campaign, but independent groups like the Lincoln Project and Unite the Country who are supporting him. Why I think what Steve said is so critical is while Trump is starting to expand his spending in Florida, it's not universal. So I think what the Trump campaign uh, is doing is prioritizing the I-4 corridor where there still remains a lot of swing voters. Uh, and I think their thought is they have to keep uh, Biden's 
margins down with Hispanic voters, and Trump's clearly going to want to maximize his support with Cuban voters. So uh, if he was fully resourced uh, and didn't have this cash crunch, he'd probably be spending equally in markets like Jacksonville, uh, in Tallahassee, uh, in Miami-Dade, English language. So they're having to make some decisions, which is remarkable for an incumbent president who's going to raise over a billion dollars to have squandered this much money that they're forced to make really, really hard decisions about where to allocate their resources. So um, listen, presidential debates are important everywhere, every state. Uh, Maybe that'll change at some point, but we know historically they always matter. It seems to me just given Biden's strength with older voters and listen, people over 65, you know, 80 percent of them are going to be watching this debate. Like talk about this, particularly the first debate on September 29th, its impact on the race in Florida. So if Biden comes out of that having, you know, being judged by voters as having done a good job, it seems to me a lot of these advantages he has with older voters in Florida kind of lock in you know, just as people are able to vote in Florida. There has been such a dedication in the Trump campaign to saying that, you know, either Joe Biden is a is a doddering uh, simpleton or he's a socialist mastermind that the easiest possible thing in the world is to go out there and to deliver on who Joe Biden is. But look, you have to be cautious. Donald Trump is a guy who understands television. He knows where the camera is. He knows how the, the sort of physicality of the set works. He will try to do the things he does. And Joe Biden's you know, team should take a big lesson from 2016 uh, and go back and look, look at those tapes where you know 15 other Republicans on that stage got played by this guy because he played by reality TV rules and, and they didn't. You know, and the Trump campaign continues to lower the bar so much for Joe Biden uh, that, you know, they, 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 they set it up really nice for him to nicely for him to look, you know, presidential and rational and normal, uh, on stage. And so, um, you know, I agree with that. I think it's a, it's a real opportunity for, for him to, to, to show that he's not what, you know, the Trump campaign has tried to say that he is to, you know, for example, parts of the Latino community that, that have, you know, have been sort of sold the socialism thing for a while. We've seen uh, reports that uh, there's a lot of conspiracy theories, a lot of them sort of QAnon-based, really bouncing around WhatsApp in particular, uh, and really in a pronounced way in the Hispanic community. Can you speak a little bit about that, whether you've seen that and what impact you think it may have on the election? It's definitely a thing. I mean, there's, you know, you you definitely see, um, you know, in some of the research that, that I've seen, at least, you know, higher levels of misinformation kind of getting into the ecosystem. You know, I think the thing that I truly wonder about in terms of the electorate is kind of like the the folks who are going to sort of believe that. I wonder how much that's sort of already cooked into who they are and where they're likely to go vote. To me, the most interesting thing, and I think this is just a function of the fact that the Trump people have spent as much money as they have advertising. And up until now, the the Biden folks haven't done as much is just, again, it's a lot of it's just a result of the fact that there's just not a lot of definition around who Joe Biden is. You know, frankly, when he was vice president or when we were running in 08, we took him to places like Orlando and Tampa, not places like Miami. You know, he doesn't have the kind of relationships uh, or, or just the kind of history. And so uh, I do think some of this gets better as there's more money spent, you know, defining Joe Biden as he spends more time, hopefully, you know, in the community addressing these things directly. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's the, the same kind of misinformation you see that, you know, that impacts older voters on Facebook. You're, you're seeing the, you know, the right use uh, tools like WhatsApp to kind of spread the same stuff. 
I, I think that the people who believe that the government is controlled by a pedophile ring that's cannibalistic and that Donald Trump and the military are, are working together secretly with the intelligence community and with the Russians to break it up are, are, are clinically insane. But you, you get to a critical mass on this stuff. I mean, God help us. I, I don't I don't know how you come back from that. But yeah, it's of course it's concerning. You know, the level of bullshittery that's just in the in the ether, the the total dishonesty of it. I mean, it's just we're in a very, very dangerous moment with, with all of this stuff in, in this election. And you worry about it not just in the Hispanic population, you worry about that globally. Global you worry about it globally. You worry about it everywhere. We worry about it with our parents. I mean, it's just the the whole body politic is being poisoned by this bullshit. There was a story in the Tampa Bay Times yesterday about the boat parades, and one of the first quotes was from a guy on the boat who essentially said, like, you know, hey, if either either my guy's gonna win or I'm or I'm going to the White House to join the militia. I I, I worry that view is more pervasive than it should be. And uh, that's which is why, you know, as, as Pluff says frequently on Twitter, and I agree with him, it's like, you know, we got to win this thing by as big a margin as we humanly can to uh, to hope we can put to bed this this phase of American history and get back to one where, you know, we're going to go we're going to go to war and campaigns are going to be ugly and nasty and, and and fought out, you know, in, in real ways. But, you know, in the end, uh, you can still shake hands and and uh, and have a functioning democracy coming out of it. Well, Steve Shale, I mean, I, I think that's right. The bigger the margin, I think the more you wound Trump. Post-election, I think there is a misguided hope that we will return to some normalcy. And it seems to me as hard as it is, like, we, yeah, we want to win this election and um, nothing's more important. But the fight goes on. The work's got to continue. So speak a little bit about that. Because no. I, I think the reaction to Trump losing uh, is actually going to be sicker than what we've seen during his presidency. You got that right. I, I think I think Trump losing is the end of the beginning. I think Trump losing will set off a set of recriminations on the right. And 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 I I truly hope that I'm wrong about this, but as our partner Reed Galen says, you know, there are people around Trump who who believe that violence is on their side. And I really hope he's wrong, and I really hope we're wrong about it. But there is there is a a temptation of nationalist populism and of authoritarianism that is very congruent with Trump, but it is not exclusive to Trump. I mean, a guy like Tom Cotton is Donald Trump with better degrees and and a little more manners. And about 80 IQ points. Yeah, well, there's that. But there are a lot of folks on the right, and they include people like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley, who believe they can take Trumpism and run it through the car wash and say, yeah, you know, we're just a little nationalist populism. We're just a little bit of authoritarian statism. We're just a little bit of ethnically defined politics. And, and I think that is a danger that we are going to face for a long time. I think the people that have enabled Donald Trump are all in on this bet. And we're going to have to, as a society and as individuals and in our political space, we're going to need to make sure that we go after those people to, to, to take them out of the political process in ways that that don't allow this to spread and don't allow it to ramify out deeper and deeper into our politics. There's going to be a Republican member of Congress from the state of Georgia who is an outright believer in QAnon, who really thinks there are cannibalistic humanoid underground sex dungeons run by Hillary Clinton. And 
we're going to face having people like that in our political process in one of two ways. You accept it and get greater chaos, greater entropy, greater violence, greater insanity, or you take hard steps to stop people like that from being in our politics. And look, a responsible Republican Party would have said to this woman in Georgia, get the F out of here. Kevin McCarthy, if he was a responsible leader, would have told the people of Georgia, if you elect this crazy person. We're not seating her. We're not seating her. She will not have a committee assignment. She will vote on the floor. That is the only thing she will ever get. And she will be in a two by four office space in the bottom of Canada. I mean, not this is not a, a, a normal party anymore. They, have, they are allowing the conspiracy DNA and the lunacy DNA to become part of their political character. And we're all going to have to fight back against this. And it's not going to be over if Donald Trump loses in 2020. It's not going to just magically reset. You know, Joe Biden's got a hard couple years ahead of him trying to get the economy back in place and to get COVID under control. The first couple of years are going to be very hard on that front. And the countervailing force on the outside is going to be the QAnon hyper MAGA nationalism that that will be very angry and very disappointed and very bitter. And it's going to be a fight. And I, I'll give you a, a couple of predictions. Um, I, I think Biden is going to win. And I think Joe Biden's going to win Florida on, a, on election night. And I think it'll be a substantial victory. What, what we were just talking about with regard to democracy, what, what sustains a democracy is faith and belief by the people in the legitimacy of the system. When, when that collapses, democracies collapse. And so you're going to see with a Trump loss, 25, 26, 27 percent of the country will not accept the legitimacy of the election. And that will fuel extremism in our politics that's alien to anything we've seen in our lifetimes at a at a level of at a level of critical mass. And and that will be the hardcore base of the of the Republican Party. You will have conspiracies that emerge out of this. Some of those conspiracies will very quickly dive into anti-Semitism, right? The stab in the back, right? It's as, it's as clear as day. But, but mostly what will ho happen to the party, it's not a consumer product. No, it's not like, God, our new light beer sucks. We better come up with a new formula. Political party that's shrinking, like a white star that's collapsing, becomes more dense, as it shrinks and it heats up. And so the extremism is going to heat up. It's going to, it's going to get more. And, and, and we're going to, we're going to have a, we're going to have an authoritarian cult of personality that numbers tens of millions of people in this country. And that ideology that they support is an un-American ideology. And, and we should understand something. Trump and Don Jr., and Ivanka, none of these people are going away. They will continue to be an open and infected sore on our, on our polity, on our, on our politics, and it will continue to metastasize in a direction that is sinister and ugly, divisive, and 
very, very dangerous for the type of society we want to have. He will be a presence in our lives for some long intermediate future, um, and he will be tweeting until he's on his deathbed. Uh, you guys are really uh, bumming me out. Uh, I mean, I agree with that. I mean, Shale, you know, God knows we've got a lot of issues to work through in our party, but uh, uh, this is very concerning. But I think the message here to everybody has to be there has to be resilience and fortitude and understand uh, as crazy as this sounds, if we beat Trump, the real fight is still to come. Guys, one more thing before we wrap up. Uh, it has just crossed uh, my Twitter feed that Donald Trump has declared himself the best thing that ever happened to Puerto Rico. Ricky Martin disagrees. I thought that was a great conversation with those two brilliant Florida men. Uh, Steve, what are your uh, sort of chief takeaways from our chat with uh, Steve Shale and Rick Wilson? My main takeaway from this is how important it is for the Biden campaign to run through the finish line in Florida. and. Um, you know, to listening, you know, to the experts in Florida about where they have to go, the things they're not doing as well as they need to do uh, to close this out. Yeah, no, Steve, I very much agree with that. And, you know, listen to Steve Shell and Rick Wilson. We know it's going to be close. I mean, that's the story of Florida. Governor's races, Senate races, presidential races, it's always close. But I, I agree with you. Biden's got work to do. He's a challenger. Trump's been preparing his Florida campaign for four years. Rick, uh, and Steve reminded us how complicated the state is. You basically have to run like nine campaigns, big geographic and media markets, uh, different elements of the Hispanic population. So that gives me some pause. Uh, and, and then listen, the other thing I want to reflect on is kind of the non-Florida part of our discussion, which is, uh, you know, particularly you and Rick Wilson talking about, uh, you know, we may be Trump, uh, but the real battles yet to come. And I think everybody's got to steal themselves for that. It's scary. We don't want to admit it. Uh, we want things to be easy, but it's not going to be because the forces of darkness and destruction uh, are only going to be uh, more empowered, I think, in a Trump loss. I think there's no doubt that that's true. Thank you to Steve Shale and Rick Wilson for sharing their deep wisdom on all things Florida with us, two Florida men uh, spending a little time with us. As we wrap up here on Friday from David and I to everybody who is observing Rosh Hashanah, we wish you a sweet New Year, Shana Tava. I'm David Clough. I'm Steve Schmidt. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount. If you liked the podcast, and we hope you did, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Aaliyah Jackson and B. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Allie Rogers is our associate producer. And Christian Castro-Rosell is our executive producer. <laughs>